The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in January 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the multiple Tony Award winning, the Emmy Award winning, and the Oscar Award winning designer and now uh, director, Tony Walton. Hi, Tony. Hello. Let me just quickly recap. Our our audience certainly knows you for your movie work with uh, five Oscar nominations, winning the Oscar for All That Jazz, two nominations for The Wiz, Murder on the Orient Express, and, of course, Mary Poppins back in 1964, for which you were costume designer and visual consultant. And in the area of theater, 16 Tony nominations. I won't read them all, but Tony Awards for Best Scenic Design for the revival in 1992 of Guys and Dolls, for The House House of Blue Leaves in 1986, and for Pippin in 1973, again, as Best Scenic Design. Other shows for which you did either scenic design or costume design, Uncle Vanya, Steel Pier, The Will Rogers Follies, Grand Hotel, The Patti LuPone uh, Revival of Anything Goes, and uh, many, many more. But let's get into talking. <laughs> Currently, as a director and also as the designer, you have a show at George Bernard Shaw show running at the Irish Rep uh, Theater here in New York called Devil's Disciple. Yes, Rather yeah. than me explaining it, just give us a basic storyline and then we'll go from there. Well, it's, um, it's very close to the same story um, of, as the story of Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. Uh, oddly enough, both Dickens and Shaw both read a novella by Wilkie Collins that was called The Frozen Deep, and it's, it was published by Dickens and uh, in his one of his periodicals, and he then dramatized it and played the, as it were, Sidney Carton, Devil's Disciple role. Um, and fell in love with the leading lady and wrecked his marriage. And <laughs> so the story sort of ricocheted through. Shaw um, responded to the sort of moral rascal who is at the core of both um, The Frozen Deep and The Tale of Two Cities and did his own take on it. But interestingly, he actually makes little um, kind of teasing references to the, his predecessors. In that, For example, The Devil's Disciple says to um, the minister's wife who has come to try and get him out of being hanged, um, sort of tauntingly, he, she says, you know I can save you. She could save him by saying, this is not my husband. He's pretending to be her husband. And But so when she says, you know I could save you, he says, how? Oh, by ch changing clothes with me, eh? You know, so when you know immediately the the reference there is to the Tale of Two Cities. Well, so it's, it's definitely a case of mistaken identity. Uh, yes, it is indeed. Yeah, that's the, the core of it. It's actually a very simple plot, and Shaw himself says a very um, unfresh <laughs> from <laughs> it, coming from several sources. And it's just that it's an early play of his. was written for a cast of well over 100. And we do it on the Irish Rep's tiny stage with nine speaking actors who play 14 roles and two actors who play guards, one of whom is also a stage manager. Also moves so it's fairly compact. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a fairly compact theater to begin it with. It is in indeed, a, in a small yes. Stage. It, it's a, a wonderful theater. It's a curiously configurated audience with... Uh, 
the main audience, about 100 or so, um, looking directly down at the stage, and another audience um, like the bottom of an L just off to the left of the stage. So you have to, when staging it, you have to accommodate both audiences, and that's both quite a challenge, but also very exciting. It's very good to keep well, it fresh exactly, and alert. It isn't exactly theater in the round. It's more like theater no. in the uh, ninety degree. Yes, uh, difference. It's something like that. Yeah. yeah. yeah so what? Mm. What? what theater on the diagonal. We'll say. <laughs> well, you, you've done many projects with the Irish yes. in that theater. Mm. So yes. what? What challenges do you have as both a director and as a designer? Obviously, with well, the obvious the ones as a designer is that it has no wings or flies, and so especially with a production such as this. Actually, most of the productions that I've done there, which include The Importance of Being Earnest, uh, with Nancy Marchand and Eric Stoltz and a wonderful group, and Major Barbara with Melissa Errico and Boyd Gaines, and uh, um, Noel Coward's musical version of Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's Fan, were all large cast productions, as is this one for the, for the Irish rep. Um, and in each case, there were multiple scene productions. So we have to go to four or five different locations, which are on a little stage with no flying and no wing space to push things in and out of. It's quite a trick. So pretty much everything has to be in some way on stage and either turns around or opens up or does some kind of flip-flop. And uh, that's one of the biggest challenges especially because in this case, um, three of the settings are quite different interiors. Um, and the fourth main setting is an exterior where the hanging is about to take place on the gallows, sort of gallows yard, with a great crowd surrounding it. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Since you are directing the show, the the common practice is a director sits down with a designer and starts to talk about their ideas. Yes, You're sitting yeah. down with yourself. Yes. How much does your work as a director spring from your design concept, and how much does the design spring from what well, you're thinking about doing the show? that's a great question. Two things that leap to mind is that as a designer, um, hopefully you are trying to think as a director in order to deliver for the director the things that will make the telling of the tale um, as clear as it can possibly be. Um, And if you're just thinking of the visual aspects as opposed to the staging and the storytelling aspects of the cast and the characters, um, then that's quite possibly a very attractive but not necessarily very functional design. Um, So that's one thing. The other is that I should say that the times that I've been lucky enough to function uh, as a director and have other folk doing the design, um, that's been my happiest times ever because uh, I can't imagine anything better than thinking intensively about design and then not having to do it. (laughs) 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 But having to do all the nuts and bolts and actually make it come through. Well, it strikes me in looking at the work specifically that you've done for Irish Rep, and you've certainly directed elsewhere now, you have dealt with highly verbal pieces. Yes. Oscar Mm. Wilde. 
Yeah. Noel and Coward, most of those, George well, Bernard Shaw. Right. Those are all, so to say, Brit or Irish pieces. And um, so that's been, you know, maybe one reason why I've felt a little more comfortable than I would have done with um, something that was maybe a Russian classic or an American classic. I don't know, but I'm, I have certainly done some of the other things. One of the things that was almost most exciting to do, and I didn't design the sets or the costumes, was um, a revival of Orson Welles' Moby Dick rehearsed, which uh, I did a summer or two ago at the John Drew Theatre in East Hampton, which was an ideal place for this production, which Welles conceived as a Victorian acting troupe um, in rehearsal for King Lear. And uh, in the midst of the rehearsal, the the sort of gentleman's gentleman who works with the leading man who's also the director of the company and the writer and so on, played by Wells, of course, in the original. Um, he not only wrote it and directed it, but played several roles in it. Um, his So that was your Orson Welles moment? That was mine, yes. <laughs> it was an adaptation uh, of Moby Dick that suddenly arrived, the scripts arrived and he says, oh, let's do that instead. And it switches to that. And it starts out as a reading and then goes into a kind of rehearsal and then becomes at least imaginatively fully fleshed out. And I saw Welles' own production, which he only ever did in London, in 1952, I think it was, and had about 30 performances, 27 of which I saw. (laughs) (laughs) I was in art school at the time, and it was just dazzling, the most extraordinary piece of stagecraft. Actually, Sir Peter Hall um, says that it was the finest piece of stagecraft he ever saw in his life, and the worst, he said, was Orson Welles' Othello. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you, you, you talked about Wells' production in England. You talked a moment ago about the various productions you've done at Irish Rep or elsewhere mm-hmm. that have been written by either English or Irish playwrights. Right. You, of mm-hmm. course, yourself are English by birth. Yes. And mm-hmm. how much, if any, do you think your your upbringing and living in England has influenced your work as both a designer and a director? It's very hard for me to judge because I've been here over 50 years uh-huh. now and um, still... I suppose have a little relic of the accent, but it's getting muddled. I should just say the last time I went to London, it was a night I took a taxi into town from the airport, and the taxi driver said, what's your accent? I said, what does it sound like? And he went, oh, could you be Indian? (laughs) So I don't know what's happening to me. Anyway, I do think, I mean, I was trained in most English theatrical disciplines. But uh, in my spell in two years as a trainee pilot in the Air Force, um, I was trained in Canada. And I used to take any opportunity I could get to zip down to Broadway. This is in the early 50s, so it was the height of the Kazan productions. And, of course, Rogers and Hammerstein and Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller and William Inge and all of that. It was just dazzling. And the design itself on Broadway was becoming so different from anything one had seen in England or Europe, which was at that time still essentially kind of illustrational, which were kind of actors against a kind of illustrated background. And um, people like Boris Aronson and Joe Melzina and Oliver Smith, great, great, great designers, were doing very poetic evocations of things, either by sort of minimalist sculpture or about through scrims and it was a real eye-opener and I determined then and there to get back here as fast as I could. 
Well, in terms of your design work, be it as a set designer, scenic designer, or even as a costume designer, any influences of by people? Any any people that? Well, Boris Aronson is a big um, was a mentor to me actually, and a big influence. He, <clears throat> as I'm sure you know, was the designer for virtually all of the Halprint, Steve Sondheim productions, but many other things too, opera and. Uh, um, plays like the Diary of Anne Frank and J.B. and things like that. Um, and he w- used to say in his wonderful Russian accent, which I won't attempt, he used to say, you have to become a baby again with each production. And, of course, that is the challenge, to try not to delve back into your previous experiences, but to try to respond freshly to every design challenge and to treat each script as if it wouldn't be validated by reusing any previous instinctual visual responses that you'd had before. So that's still my dream now. If I have the opportunity to have a choice, I would always try to go for the thing that's as far away as possible from the previous thing I've been working on. And sometimes that can even happen simultaneously. You mentioned Anything Goes, and during the time that I was designing Anything Goes, I was also designing for um, Christopher Plummer and Glenda Jackson, the dreaded Scottish play, (laughs) and also an extraordinary um, musical evening um, by Linda Ronstadt called Canciones de Mi Padre, which was a... And it's a concert, but it was a musical production about the scale of Pippin that toured all over America. And because it was going from huge auditoriums and theaters into little school halls and things, everything essentially had to be on traveler tracks, like, you know, like window curtains, things just being drawn all the way across the stage. And a lot of it I designed to be attached to net so that, for example, you could have a an old Mexican railroad train appear to be going across the stage, but actually it was all just folded up on the wings and this uh, huge net curtain. But you could even attach a lamp to the front of it and things like that. And, of course, with Anything Goes, uh, which was at Lincoln Center Theater in 1987, Mm -hmm. I guess, you were responsible for the entire visual look, the costumes as well as the scenic design. Yes, not the lighting, which was brilliantly done by... uh, by Paul Gallo. I actually did my very first New York production. I was the lighting designer. I had mysteriously, and I think quite inappropriately, um, passed the union, very stringent union exam in sets, costumes, and lighting. And I thought, oh my goodness, well, why don't I try it? And this was Noel Coward's beautiful operetta conversation piece that has... I'll Follow My Secret Heart and just an amazing series of songs. And he was actually in charge of the production, so it was extraordinary to work with him. Um, But when I was lighting on about the second day of the text, it was just before the dinner break, and Coward said, Young Tony, I think I was about 21 at the time, (laughs) said, Young Tony, do we truly believe that the weather in the summer in 1815 in Brighton was this glum and gloomy (laughs) 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 and drifted off to his dinner break and I just went straight to the phone and rang the only lighting designer I knew at that time which was the great Abe Fader who in fact had worked with Orson Welles and essentially invented what we think of as modern theatre lighting. A great genius. Anyway, I phoned him. He was there in five minutes calling for a six-foot ladder, and he suddenly... He was a little fabulous to Ken... um, 
sort of Damon Runyon sort of guy with a little cigar, a little stub of a cigar in his mouth all the time. And he zipped up the ladder and just shrieked at the top of his lungs for about two hours. And by the end of the dinner break, all the lamps had been moved and all the colors had been changed. And Coward came in and said, ah, the weather certainly seems to have approved. Let's press on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're talking about early productions. You've mentioned art school. You've mentioned influences. How did you get your start as a designer? It was sort of a mistake. My dad was kind of a famous, well, an actually famous surgeon. He was, amongst other things, selected by Sister Kenny to start all the original polio clinics and um, was very involved in the more desperate days of polio. Um, and I always just assumed I would be, the whole family just assumed I would follow in his footsteps. But during my um, school and college years, the things I did least well in were the, letter, the medically related subjects, like physics and chemistry and biology and so on. Plus, I had a slight tendency to topple over if I saw somebody's finger bleed. And <laughs> <laughs> We all got the yes. We all got the impression I might not have the perfect bedside manner. At any rate, um, I was doing... Um, I, I was switched in from these medically related subjects into a classics remove um, uh, with Greek and Latin and so forth. And we were obliged to learn acres of Horace and Virgil and, and um, repeat them in class. And uh, it was very tiresome. And one day I came in, this didn't go down well with the teacher, but I came in and tried to keep my fellow classmates um, on board by giving one of Stanley Holloway's um, narrations called Albert and the Lion. Stanley Holloway, as you probably remember, was the Doolittle in My Fair Lady originally. And he used to do these sort of end of the pier things in England when he was a younger performer. And this was about the Rams Bottoms who went to Blackpool every, every year. And, and uh, the waves, the weather was not so exciting, the waves. They was piddling and small. There was no wrecks and nobody drowned. In fact, nothing to laugh at at all. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, this didn't go well, and I got kicked out of the classics remove, and because I'd been doing some posters for the debating society, somebody said, oh, well, we should send him to art school, and I was sent part-time, part of every day, to an art school in Oxford, and... Uh, bizarrely called the City of Oxford School of Technology, Art and Commerce. <laughs> and while I was there, I started doing marionette shows and moved from Gilbert Sullivan to Mozart, first his teenage opera Bastien and Bastien, and then the magic flute, which with marionettes you can really get some magic out of. And of course, I was lighting them and designing the marionettes and making them and um, and lighting <laughs> mm -hmm. and and singing the part of Papageno. I was probably about 15 or 16 or something. <laughs> uh, and a great, great um, painter, designer in London, uh, in Oxford, rather, near Oxford, called John Piper, who's actually collected a lot in America, uh, happened to come to one of these performances. And he came backstage after it, and he looked like a he was pencil thin. He looked like a medieval saint. Looked as if he'd stepped right out of a stained glass mm -hmm. window. And he came backstage and said, "Which one is Walton?" And I was very nervous. I held up my finger, and he said, "You should do this." And I said, 
what is this? <laughs> <laughs> well, what have I just and he done? said, yes, he said, stage design. And he said, I'm going to send you to the Slade School of Fine Art in London, where he was a visiting teacher. And so that's how I got into it. And partially to pay myself, pay my way there, I took an acting job, hopefully heading to Royal, towards direction, because I had been doing that in school, um, at Wimbledon Repertory Theatre, right near the tennis courts. Um, which was sort of like a year-round summer stock. And I acted there for a little bit, and I I had been a very cocky actor in school and college, but the minute there was a paying audience in front, I became incredibly self-conscious, and and I was getting three guineas a week, which then was about $10 a week, and I didn't want to give that up. So (laughs) (laughs) I said, is there anything else I can do? And they said, well, we can certainly use a stagehand and... uh, I think the scenic artist would like somebody to help him out a bit. So that's what happened. And oddly enough, a few years later, Roger Rees of, of uh, the Shakespeare fame and so forth, and who was until recently the artistic director of Williamstown Theatre Festival, he came to the same theatre in Wimbledon as a scenic artist. And at some point in the midst of his work, there was asked if you would mind taking over a role. And so we had so you switched, <laughs> switched. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not quite the same moment in time. Hmm. So what <clears throat> what got you your first professional design work? Well, the first I did some uh, oh, what are they called industrials for Biff Liff, who at that time was the stage manager of um, My Fair Lady. You're getting a disconnect yeah. because mm-hmm. you're. Now, are you now talking about work over here in America? Yes. Because yes. You, so you trained over in England. Yes. What brought you to America? Well, uh, then I had these two years in the Air Force, which mm-hmm. was compulsory military service, where I was one of the be- the worst pilots in the history of <laughs> flying. I think you're still here, partly because I enjoyed it. It was just <laughs> I was always trying to make it interesting. Training in Canada, it, it was hard to keep the mind alive because Canada is laid out like a quilt, you know, and they all these perfect squares and there's not a lot of other stuff in the air in those days there wasn't in the early 50s in Canada so I used to try and make it as interesting as I could by uh, having colorful landings and things like that (laughs) 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 so I was actually um, finally moved along and not uh, encouraged to to move to jets which had just started to appear in the form of something called a Canberra um, with a report that said this pilot is not equipped with a proper sense of danger <laughs> and, would, and would be ill-advised to drive in civilian life. So, so you finished I'm, the so Air Force yeah, and, and stayed. So, and well, I came. went back mm-hmm. briefly, um, and then uh, my girlfriend, who was a uh, and is um, a great performer, um, had been over on Broadway starring in The Boyfriend, this is Julie Andrews, and so when My Fair Lady opened, uh, at the time we were communicating by dictaphone every day and night, um, so I, it was very exciting, of course, to hear this show slowly coming to life through these tapes every night, and then there was this astounding response to it. It had been a pretty astounding response to her and the boyfriend, but My Fair Lady, of course, was a very special case. Uh, so I zipped over as soon as I could, and I didn't know if I would be able to stay or if I would be able to work or anything. And, in fact, because of the union, you know, you can't work until you get in that. 
and the union exam had just been taken about a week or two before I arrived. For scenic design? Well, scenic and costumes, yes, Ah. and lighting, as it turned out. So I spent quite a while as a graphic artist. I got an amazing job through Abe Vader, oddly enough, this um, incredible lighting designer. He introduced me uh, to the editor of Playbill, and uh, I became their sort of resident graphic artist for a year or so. Did all the caricatures of everybody in uh, Broadway shows. So I got to go see everything in the, during previews, which was the best possible job I could have hoped for. And also kind of like, like a graduate uh, education. It was in a way, although I got into a lot of trouble with it. For example, on the opening of um, Long Day's Journey Into Night, but, you know, when it was originally first performed in 56... Um, I had, you know, it was Frederick March and his wife, Florence Eldridge, and Jason Robards. And um, I had somewhat, you always have to exaggerate something in a caricature. (laughs) And I had somewhat exaggerated Florence Eldridge's nose. And she was extremely upset and um, refused to go on on opening night. And in those days, I don't know if you're young enough to remember, but they used to print opening night playbills with gold covers. And so the um, ushers went out into the audience and said, we've just discovered that the gold is not quite dry and we don't want to have your best uh, clothes spoiled and we certainly don't want any lawsuits. So uh, we were collecting all the programs and they were all taken back (laughs) (laughs) before she would go on. So an auspicious beginning. Yes. (laughs) Well, you were only 22 years of age when you had your first uh, Broadway job, I guess, with uh, Noel Coward with a conversation Mm -hmm. piece. Right. How did that come about? Um, Well, curiously, during the union exam, when Mm. I was finally able to take it, um, I... I got lucky, and they they throw you like a hundred, in those days, they'd throw you a hundred choices of plays or musicals or operas or whatever. And you have to sort of study up on that. And on the day that you get, in those days it was a three-day exam, and the first day they would say which of those productions you would make a set sketch and three costumes, I think it was, and a lighting plot for. And I got what for me was a lucky thing in terms of my background and temperament. It was Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, So luckily, I got in, got through. There were only three of us out of the hundred and something that were taking the exam who got through. Uh, But one of those 103 had already been approached by his college mates to design conversation piece. And when he didn't get into the union... He said there was this Brit guy sitting mm-hmm. next to me who was probably very suitable for it because uh, we could sort of see each other's work, you know. And we weren't, uh, we all were numbers in those exams, you know. So they <laughs> 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 he said, I think he must have been 83 or whatever it was. Uh-huh. And um, so they tracked me down that way, and that was an amazing piece of luck. You worked on a very early production for you, the original production of A Funny Thing Happened the Way to the Forum, yes. directed mm-hmm. by the great George Abbott. Yes. Actually, in the initial days when I started working on it, it was Jerry Robbins who was the director. 
but he had a huge success with his Ballet USA company at the Spoleto Festival in Italy, and as a result of that, was invited to do a world tour, and so he wanted to focus on that. At least that's my version of the story. If you want to read an alternate, (laughs) you should read uh, Larry Gelbart's Laughing Matters, uh, which is a much more stringent (laughs) version of what happened. Well, Forum is a show that fans of musical theater always hear about it was up, I believe, in New Haven. Mm-hmm. It wasn't working. Yes. Suddenly the story goes. Not only not we need working, an but audiences were running out of the theater in groups of 30 and 50. <laughs> Why? What? Well, uh, to sort of jump to the end, Jerry Robbins did come back in. Um, Steve Sondheim, who had been working closely with him, of course, um, begged Hal Prince, who was producing it, to bring Jerry back in. It was a very complicated situation because... By then, the cast that had been selected had been selected by George Abbott, and coincidentally, a number of the principals, including Zero Mistel and the wife of Jack Guilford, who was his sidekick, and John Carradine, had been named by uh, Jerry Robbins in the Army McCarthy hearings on the House on American, American Activities, Activities Committee. Yeah. Yes. Um, so Hal phoned up. Zero and said um, Steve would like me to bring Jerry back into the picture and of course he is the best conceivable play doctor for something like this Um, would you object to his coming on board and Zero hadn't been a part of Jerry's package as it were at the first, I think it was Phil Silvers who said he couldn't read these names, were just impossible, pseudolous and erroneous and so on. And then it was Milton Bell who said that he it would have to be his character who dressed in a dress. <laughs> 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 and so they kept moving, and finally uh, Abbott cast Zero. Anyway, um, when Hal asked him whether he would accept working with Zero, um, Zero apparently said, let me be clear, are you asking us to eat with him? And he said, no, I'm just saying he can save us the show if you have the patience to just go along with whatever his suggestions are. And Zero famously said, hell, we of the left do not blacklist. (laughs) 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 And Zero came on and we were all, I mean, uh, Jerry Robbins came on and we were all terrified. We were actually lined up on the stage in, uh, at the National Theatre in Washington. And um, and Jerry, who was socially the most charming man in the world, but a genuine nightmare to work with, uh, walked along introducing himself to this line. And we were all assumed we would be the one to be fired. And, um, and he couldn't have been more charming, and he finally got to zero. And the whole company, of course, are holding their breath. And zero thrust out his hand and said, hiya, loose lips. <laughs> and of course, the whole company cracked up, including Jerry Robbins, and that really effectively broke the ice. And he said right away, it's all set up wrong. At that time, it opened with a, uh, a very charming soft shoe sung by a famous old vaudevillian called David Burns. Uh, Love is in the air, quite clearly, people everywhere act queerly, etc. And um, he said, you can't do that. It gives an expectation of a charming and romantic evening, and it's not. And and Steve is sitting there, he's saying, it's nothing 
with kings, it's nothing with crowns, it's something with lovers and liars and clowns and see this right away. (laughs) (laughs) And so, in effect, he created with Steve a comedy tonight and uh, that in itself made such an astonishing turnabout in the production. People immediately knew the nature of the show because of the brilliant staging that Jerry did along with. He just said to me, for example, and I was a very small part of this mix, but he said, is there anything from the set or any bits and pieces of costumes that you're no, no longer using? And I said, oh, well, we, yeah, we lost a hat in this scene because its beak was too long and throwing a shadow on uh, erroneous... And we had some juggling balls, and he said, oh, well, give me the hat with the juggling balls. And (laughs) he immediately had me attach the balls to the hat with elastic. And so then he had somebody juggling the balls, and then they, of course, just all fell and bounced on their own. (laughs) And and I said, we had some spare legs that were to do with a gag that had been cut. And he started doing all this extraordinary business with... It was as if he had said, give me a pocket handkerchief. And I'll do 101 stunningly funny things with it. Um, and it, that, plus the brilliance of Steve's music and lyrics, literally turned it around. He did do a fair amount of fixing throughout the show. Jack Cole, who was the original choreographer, um, who was a great genius, had a, a serious problem in finishing things. And it was sort of a fear of death, you know, you don't... As sometimes there are other folks in the theater who like that who sort of feel if they get to the end of it it's all over and their pendulum is going to stop you know? <laughs> um, so there were numbers that were dazzling numbers that would suddenly just stop and the audience <laughs> would be completely baffled by you know how come there was no big finish um, so he fixed all those things and well, you were still uh, in, in your mid to late 20s, and uh, you did both scenic and costume design yes. for a funny thing happened on the way of the forum. And here you are working with people who are now legendary, Stephen Sondheim, Jerome mm-hmm. Robbins, George Abbott. What sort of lessons did you learn from them? Well, I hope uh, I learned a lot. I mean, a lot of specifics, like the things I was just describing mm-hmm. that uh, Jerry brought to the show. Um, I do quite often... Um, had flashbacks to George Abbott when I'm in my directing adventures. Although the one, the person who's most present in that way is, oddly enough, is um, Bob Fonsi, who is, uh, you know, my personal Mr. Mischief. And Mm -hmm. uh, really, strangely, he's almost always whispering over my shoulder when I'm working on a directing job now. He's always saying something, Are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of great because it really does test what you think and what you're doing I snap back at him sometimes (laughs) (laughs) was that the nature of your relationship when he was with us all well it's very it was very very as most people who worked with him will tell you not all but most will tell you he was um, almost the the diametric opposite to the character he presented himself as in all that jazz uh, that was a sort of vision of himself that he wanted people to believe was what he liked, partly because of his um, almost worship of Jerry Robbins and Jerry being such a kind of mean, tough customer as a director. Um, so Bob liked people to think that he was like that. too. Also, of course, there had been the infamous Jed Harris, who was the first hugely triumphant theatrical 
personality back in the days of oh, Broadway and Our Town and um, Front Page and all of those things, all of which he produced and many of which he directed. And he was also the first theatre person, as I'm sure you know, ever to appear on the cover of Time magazine. My very first show, actually, even before conversation conversation piece, but only in a small way, was produced and directed by Jed Harris, and it was based on a it's called Wings of a Dove, I think, and it was based on a Henry James story. And I did a portrait, a big oil portrait of the leading actress Pippa Scott, and that was a deeply strange experience. There was a leading man who may not ring a bell with you called Edmund Purdom who had at the last moment replaced um, Elizabeth Taylor's then-husband, Michael Wilding, who had had a kind of breakdown as he started filming The Egyptian, I think it was, a big cinemascope affair. And they had approached Olivier to take over at a moment's notice because he was touring America with his double bill of Caesar and Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra with Vivian Lee. And Olivia said, no, of course I can't stop the tour, but we do have a young man who's very attractive, and uh, I'm sure he's going to be perfect in the movies. And so he recommended <laughs> Edmund Purdom. And to cut a long story as short as I can, on the opening night, the first act went wonderfully well because he wasn't in it, and it was set in London, and then it moved to Venice, and he was this Venetian count. And as he started to speak, a man about two rows behind me, in a fabulous sort of Texan accident, accent, which I can't get close to, said something like, um, if that man's an actor, I'm a prairie coyote. <laughs> 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 so, of course, all the audience cracked up and the cast cracked up. And that was the end of that. <laughs> the show didn't survive. Well, <clears throat> you've spoken about George Abbott. You've spoken about... Bob Fosse, and you said early on that um, you know, as a director, you think about, or as a designer, you mm-hmm. think about, you have to think as a director. Yes. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, of the many directors that you've worked with, mm-hmm. on the many shows, we couldn't possibly go through them all, who is the director for whom you found your thinking most aligned? Um there have been a, a, a few, but probably the one that leaps to mind first is Mike Nichols, with whom I've done an enormous amount of uh, theatre and also uh, two or three films. And um, he's uh, probably the brightest man alive. And uh, even if he's not um, appreciating what you're offering, he always manages to find a way to kind of bend it into the way he's thinking. And so you always have the impression you're floating along on the same wavelength, even though you may be getting to that position in a rather mercurial way. Um, He's also, of course, one of the funniest people in the world, sometimes the funniest. And um, so it's an extraordinary... Anybody you speak to who has worked with him will tell you what an, an incredible treat that is, not just as a professional experience, but as a sort of life experience. And he's a great friend, and I I owe him a great deal. I've known him actually since uh, he and Elaine May were doing an evening with Nichols and May at the, what was that, the Golden, I guess. Hmm. Let me ask the reverse question, though you probably won't name names. What has been the situation? Have you ever encountered where 
you and the director clearly had very different views of the show. If that happens, I usually, I have usually withdrawn. Once in a while, it comes up um, sort of later in the day. This is not a direct answer to the question you were asking, but for example, with Tennessee Williams' last play, I think, which was called The Red Devil Battery Sign, I was the original designer on that. It was a David Merrick production. And the director and I actually got along just great on it, and we presented the rather complicated all-copper model. It was a sort of a sculptural artifact that kept shifting and changing. Uh, Presented it to David Merrick in his office with his sort of minions and backers and so on all around. And the presentation went kind of wonderfully (coughs) with the director chiming in and me changing the set around and so on. Um, And many of his people making very pleasant sounds and response. But at the end of it all, David Merrick in that sort of dark, doer way he had, he was was pressed against the wall about as far away as it was possible to get from me and the model in the room. And he said, well, you have done exactly what I hoped you would not do. (laughs) And I said, I'm so sorry, David. He said, you have made it apparent and evident that Tennessee Williams is an artist and it is my job to make sure that people see him as a successful commercial playwright. <laughs> he said, I should have a set that can play the show if the stars are sick. This was Anthony Quinn and Margaret Leighton starring in it. And uh, he said, look at my production of Sherlock Holmes across the street. That There's fog and there's all these things are revolving and... And, you know, the audience is getting their money's worth even. And he said, the audience would come to see Rosencrantz and Guildenstern because I clearly made it seem as if it was about the rag trade. (laughs) (laughs) And by the time they discovered it wasn't, I'd got their money. (laughs) Uh, At any rate, I said, well, I'm sorry, David, I'm so committed to this way of approaching it that it's too late for me to turn back. And I will cheerfully hand over all my research materials and everything to Robin Wagner, who was a friend who I knew had just taken over Sugar for David Merrick, the musical that's based on Some Like It Heart, and um, which had originally been designed by Joe Melziner, and there had been that switch out of town. And so I did send all my stuff to Robin, and um, to my astonishment... Uh, David Merrick paid me in full as if I'd completed everything and it all opened and was running and uh, so he had the dark side with the little jewel at the core of it (laughs) (laughs) well of of all the shows that you've designed be it scenic or or costumes which was the most fun the most joyous and which one was the toughest for you to to do oh golly Uh, well you know I'm sure Larry Gelbart's favorite quote about if Hitler is alive and well. (laughs) I hope he's out of town working on a new musical. Um, So many of the things that might, in retrospect, seem to have been glorious experiences, um, more often than not, were a real struggle getting there just because of the nature of all the collaborations involved in doing a new Uh, particularly a new musical show. I actually teach a class in collaboration for 
playwrights and directors and actors at um, the actor studio at Pace University. Um, and I co- my the subtitle of my class is Liaison Dangereuse, <laughs> <laughs> and of course that's always there, and there's inevitably um, problems and unhappinesses. And in fact, my mentor Boris Aronson said there are only two rules in the theatre: one is that every production has a victim, and the second rule is don't be the victim. <laughs> <laughs> so the problems were not so much with. <clears throat> in your mind getting the design thinking of the design it was more the collaboration well it could be it's everything Uh, um, especially if as I do you're trying to find things that are as different as possible from each other um, partly to stretch and to to uh, lessen the chance of running into any kind of boredom with the work by just repeating yourself too often Um, I had been trained very much in the vein of the famous uh, English designers Cecil Beaton and Oliver Messel. And I had an exhibition quite early, excuse me, in my career in the 50s. Um, And I was lucky in that almost everything sold. And and when I went to say goodbye to all the things just before they were about to be taken down, and I was almost alone in the gallery, I looked around and I thought, this is so strange. It only feels like one vein of uh, of a career that I wish had many, many veins to it. And I felt I'm going to be the poor man's Cecil Messel and <laughs> better get out of this right away. Well, uh, it's it's often said that if <clears throat> a person goes in for a job interview, the decision <clears throat> by the employer is usually made in the first 30 seconds. Or you go to buy a house, you, the buyer, make the decision in the first 30 seconds or so. Yeah. <clears throat> if you were putting together a scrapbook of all your designs... <clears throat> And you knew that the first couple pages were going to be the first impression people would have and probably make right. up their minds. Mm-hmm. What would be pages one, two, and three of, of your designs? Well, I'm sort of in, uh, attempting to be in the thick of that. I'm about seven years late with it. <laughs> but uh-huh. I do actually have a design book and a blithering book coming out, sort of piggybacked. They're both called Scene Changes. And uh-huh. the design book, obviously, is spelled S-C-E-N-E, and the other one is S-E-E-N. Uh, probably too smart alecky for its own good but anyway I am facing that particular problem and of course it's a little bit complicated because I do a lot of book illustration and other you know show posters and things so trying to narrow the field into something that makes some sense is quite a challenge but things that stick in my mind are sometimes not the obviously showy things for example one of the earliest things that I did with um, Mike Nichols was his astonishing all-star production of Uncle Vanya at Circle in the Square, which had George C. Scott and Julie Christie and Nicole Williamson and Lillian Gish and Kathleen Nesbitt and Barnard Hughes wow. and on and on. Just an amazing. Um, and I've had, not so very long ago, a chance to do it again with uh, an almost equally starry group, including Roger Rees <laughs> um, and Laura Linney and so on. Derek Jacobi. But anyway, that first production was so amazing and the faces were so amazing that um, Jules Fisher, who was in the very early days of his lighting career, um, had students stretched flat in the grid of the Circle and Square Theatre with little miniature follow spots so that these magic faces were glowing. From And I tried to make all the costume palette 
um, as non-interruptive as possible. So it was a, there wasn't actually any black, but there were all kinds of sort of prune darks and some whites and things as well. Um, so, and the set itself was very unflashy. It was all these sort of old weathered wooden things that could shift into different uh, configurations and um, it was just such a wonderful product what, everything that everybody else did in it was so wonderful that my memories of that are totally blissful and I remember actually that on the opening night, Neil Simon came running backstage and hammering on George C. Scott's door, and um, uh, and the door flung open, and he started shouting from the crowd, "I knew it! I knew it! I wish that fucker Stanislavski was still alive. I would have said, you see, you see why he called it a comedy." <laughs> <laughs> so Uncle Vanny is page one, page two. I think two. it's page two. Well, it would be one of the, you know, Guys and Dolls, Anything Goes, one uh, of the uh, most, you know, joyous musicals, I think. Yeah. Uh, page three. Yes. Um, page three would probably be... I did a limited editions um, illustration job many years ago. Actually, almost exactly the same time as that, Mike Nichols' Uncle, Uncle Vanya, um, that was... Oscar, two Oscar Wilde plays published back to back. You could open it either end, and one end was Importance of Being Earnest, and the other end was Lady Windermere's Fan. And um, you could probably tell by the fact that I've since directed both of those <laughs> 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 that that had a big impression on, made a big impression on me. In the introduction, John listed some of your film credits, and we don't spend a lot of time talking about film on this right. program. But I want to ask about an involvement with some films that so many people are familiar with that wasn't in that list. Mm -hmm. You apparently had a hand in the inception of the Walt Disney Winnie the Pooh films? <laughs> well, sort of a hand. Um, it was during the time that I was already there on the pre-production of Mary Poppins, and um, I got to know the Sherman brothers, who were almost in an adjoining office, smaller even than this, if you can imagine such a thing. And who wrote uh, the score for Mary Poppins? This, Mary Poppins were Dick and Robert Sherman, mm -hmm. and um, they were they had completed the score of Mary Poppins while we were doing the designs, but they were starting out on the score for the Winnie the Pooh series, which at that time, in the way that Disney worked, they weren't sure whether it would be a feature or a series of shorts. Or, it, it, Dumbo, for example, was created exactly the same way just you know, starting to do these um, sort of knockout chunks of animated film and then seeing if there was enough glue to turn it into a full feature. And um, because I was their sort of resident Brit, <laughs> they would invite me in to hear whatever they had just completed to see whether there were any anachronisms or anything that was too American or whatever. And I loved that. As I say, their office was about half the size of yours, mm -hmm. and they had just room for an upright piano and one visitor. And what? I would be pressed against the wall, and they would sing whatever new song. And once in a while, they would teach it to me to see what it sounded like with an English voice. And after a bit, they said, um, would you consider trying out for the voice of Pooh? And I said, I can't do that. I, I gave up acting because of this sort of self-consciousness. And they said, well, um, let's teach you a song anyway, and we'll see how it goes. And so I learned 
the principal, you know, uh, chubby little, uh, cubby little chubby old bear, whatever that is. Uh, um, oh, I should be able to remember that. Tubby little chubby all stuffed with fluff. That's right. <laughs> Willy nilly silly old bear. And um, I went in one morning and they said, OK, we'd like you to sing that to Walt on the lunch break. I said, I couldn't do that. <laughs> and they said, well, we were afraid you might say that. So we've got a little orchestra set up in the recording studio and we'll go down to it there. I said, well, you know, if we can do some stop and starts, maybe I could do it that way. And we went down to the studio, the recording studio, and there was an orchestra of about 35 people <laughs> sitting there. And my friends, the brothers, went behind the glass panel, and I could just see them vaguely swimming in their fish <laughs> tank, you know. And their disembodied voices came out. And I'm standing with this 35 incredible musicians. And what I hadn't banked on was that there was this little musical int intro that the whole orchestra played, which was so daunting that I couldn't then make a sound of any sort. And we all laughed and <laughs> said, let's try another one. And we did a few takes, and I never managed to get a peep out. And at that time, I used to be very free with my advice to my then wife, Julie Andrews. And after that, I was much more respectful. <laughs> <laughs> let's come back to the stage, because there seems to be a missing link in our conversation today, which is we've talked about you directing, we've talked about you designing, but we haven't talked about that first time you directed and mm. the experience and what it was to have been thinking like a director mm. and then to be a director. Can you just tell us about that? Well, I had directed quite a bit, as I said, in school and college. Um, and But the first time was a very weird time. And that, it was in the late 50s or early 60s. Actually, it was the time when Jack Gelber's play, The Connection, had just opened. Do you know when? Do you remember when that was? It would have been the late 50s, I believe. Yeah, I think so, or around 60 or something like that. And I was going to a Shakespeare class at the Old Circle in the Square uh, that was being taught by a British director with whom I'd worked. And um, Douglas Seal, his name was. And... Um, the the bulk of the cast of the connection were students in that class, and they, as you know, and probably not many people remember now, were the first sort of, so to say, street actors. The first sort of Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, kind of actors. They were had an extraordinary, absolutely hair raising level of reality and sometimes scariness. It was a play about drug addiction and so on. Um, and they were really interesting people. Uh, and there were even <clears throat> sort of in the ensemble folks who later became stars. Uh, and we were, the st we students were um, invited to put on a couple of Shakespearean plays. And the cast of The Connection asked me if I would direct them in As You Like It. <laughs> and that was one of the best times of my life, I must say. It was um, probably the strangest Shakespearean production ever ever seen. But well, when you came back to directing after all of the professional design <clears throat> yes. work, then as a grown-up. Well, the first one um, actually was an old coward piece, just by accident. It was going to be the importance of being earnest, and... That was because Charlotte Moore, the artistic director of the Irish Rap, had clipped uh, a little piece out of a John Simon interview I had done a year or two before 
in which he had said, if somebody were to approach you about directing something, what would you like it to be? And because, as I've mentioned, my affection for those wild plays, <coughs> excuse me, I stupidly said the importance of being earnest, which is like, you know, deciding to dive off the highest building in the history of the world. I was invited over to see the theatre. Actually, her invitation was sort of headed by, you have to come and see our theatre. It has the best toilets on or off Broadway, (laughs) 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 which is indeed true, and it was a very good lure. Anyway, uh, I was sort of planning to do that, and then just coincidentally, during the summer right before it, um, one of the directors in uh, who was about to direct Noel Coward's final plays, uh, it's called Coward in Two, Noel Coward in Two Keys. I was principally the director of the second play, which was kind of his last play and his sort of coming out play, um, which was called A Song of Twilight. Uh, anyway, the director who was supposed to be doing it suddenly got a good Hollywood job and skipped rather close to the rehearsal time. And there wasn't time to audition anybody or anything. So I just called friends. I called B.B. Um, Newworth and uh, D. Hoti and um, Lee Lawson, who's the husband of Twiggy, with whom I'd worked quite a bit and who had just been playing The Merchant and The Merchant of Venice on Broadway with Dustin, Um, and an unknown at the time actor called Bobby Carnevale, who's now doing very well for himself. And Bibi said, you know, I've never done a play. And I said, well, I haven't directed one either. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we have this adventure together? And uh, we did, and that was an unbelievably joyous experience partly because of all of them and partly because Coward is such a treat to work on and this particular play although of course it's extraordinarily funny is as I mentioned sort of his coming out story it started out writing as if it were about Somerset Maugham or Max Beerbohm or you know somebody who had lived a somewhat concealed life and then at some point in the midst of it he said I guess I just have to come off it. This is all about me. <laughs> well, that's that's very early Tony Walton as a director. Yeah, Let's yeah. talk about current and future Tony Walton as a director. You mentioned mm-hmm. the Sherman Brothers with Mary Poppins and yes. with Winnie the Pooh and an upcoming production called Busker Alley. Give us like a would little you, Well, that's also the Sherman Brothers. Right, that's right, I'm saying the Sherman yes, Brothers, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Right. Um, oddly enough, that came about uh, initially. My wife and I were both... Um, big fans of a British movie produced and starred in by Charles Lawton uh, called in London, St. Martin's Lane, and in America, Sidewalks of London. It was the film that introduced Vivian Lee and, in fact, won her the role um, in Gone with the Wind. And she plays a little teenage cockney sneak thief. And... um, Charles Lawton plays a busker. It is essentially the same story idea as The Blue Angel, and Lawton got the producer of that movie to come and work with him on this, and got Noel Coward's very close friend uh, and portraitist um, to Clemence Dane to write the script. Uh, Anyway, I fell in love with this movie, and my wife and I got the rights to it in the very early 60s. Um, and it's a long and complicated story, which I won't go into. But in the course of trying to get it on, after we had lost 
uh, a star that we thought was going to be uh, committed to it. We so I had been working a couple of times with a very young, very attractive Michael Jackson, and so I thought, well, what, what if we switch the color and the sex of this whole story, mm-hmm. and had the Cockney sneak thief be an American and street kid, and it could be Michael Jackson, and his mentor, instead of being an old white guy, uh, could be Lena Horne, and you know, a great entertainer teaching him how. And as a result of this inspiration, we lost the rights. <laughs> but uh, one of the people we had been talking to in the course of this was Tommy Tune. And as a result of this, uh, A.J. Carruthers, who is the writer of a number of Walt Disney movies and others, um, picked up the rights with the Sherman Brothers and wrote the version that was first um, produced in America by the Weisslers. And um, I was the set designer on it, Willa Kim, who with a wonderful, extraordinary costume designer with whom I've collaborated a lot, had done the costumes. Um, and Tommy Tune broke his ankle and there were some other problems. That was, that was some years ago. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So but, probably but, about 12 years ago, something right. like that. Yeah. But now the, 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 the latest mm-hmm. version with Jim Dale we're hoping to see sometime in the next year yes, or so. Yes, we did a gala for the York Theatre uh, a year ago. Uh, a year ago in November, mm-hmm. and um, Jim Dale and Glenn Close starred in it, along with a very close friend of mine called Anne Rogers, who was the original Polly Brown in The Original mm-hmm. Boyfriend, amongst many, many other things. She came over to play another key role, and George S. Irving played another one, and we had Noah Racy and a tremendous cast. Um, and it was an, an electrifying night. It was fully even though it was only a one-night performance. It was fully um, choreographed and costumed and set, and even though the settings were essentially projections. And uh, everybody was off book, which was astounding mm-hmm. for this one night. And at the end of it, we had four and a half hours to technically throw it on stage. And so it was a dress, tech, lighting, sound, everything, all at once, four and a half hours, and then the one performance. And George S. Irving, who was then, who was now 84, I think, was then 83, came to Richard Pilbrough, my collaborating lighting designer. Both Richard and I are well into our 70s. And he said, young fellas, he said, you <laughs> and I well know that what we just did takes minimally two and a half weeks in Philadelphia. So <laughs> don't do it again. The Weisslers <laughs> might find out. <laughs> well. At any rate, as a result of that, and at going very well, um, we did get a recording with that company made, which has just recently been released. Um, and as a result of that and various other th- things, a, a group of producers have uh, come together to try and get it launched on Broadway. But of course, there's all the right. theater availability things to well. be gone through as usual. We hope that we will see it on Broadway sometime we in 2008. Hope so. We're pretty determined to get and it. And we'll on encourage this year. our listeners to see Devil's Disciple at the Irish Rep. Please, and Tony please. Walton will say thanks to you for being on Downstage oh, Center I've today. Oh, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank so you. We for thank some you. Very good questions. Thank Thanks, you. Tony. Thank for the you. American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. 
The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.